by Potiphar's wife who lusted after him while he remained pure before the Lord. And the Lord vindicated him by raising him up as the highest leader in Egypt after Pharaoh. Joseph loved and trusted in the Lord despite great trials around him. And the Lord blessed him. Well, in our text, Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 11, we continue our study of Isaiah's prophecies of the servant of the Lord. In the previous servant songs, Isaiah 42 and 49, the servant of the Lord is revealed in time to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who has come into this world to save his people from their sins. Here in Isaiah 50, we will see that the servant of the Lord is obedient, and that due to his perfect obedience, he is vindicated by God against his enemies. And unlike the first two servant songs, Isaiah 42 and 49, the third servant song ends with the demand of a response. Trust the Lord, and do not rely on your own understanding and resources. Well, we begin with the servant as obedient. We read in verse 5 of our text, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And this is the servant himself speaking here. Isaiah 42, the servant of the Lord was called by the Lord and will not fail in his mission, if you recall that chapter. And in Isaiah 49, the servant will bring glory to God and be a savior to the nations of the earth. Here in Isaiah 50, we learn that the servant will is completely obedient to the Lord who had called him. And this is said in contrast to God's people who were not obedient. God's people were not obedient. We read the verses leading up to the servant song, verses 1 to 3 of Isaiah 50, that God's people had sold themselves because of their iniquities and sins. And at the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, he declared that the people of Israel, 1 verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they are forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backwards. Talk to your friends, that is a description of the church in the Old Testament. May that never be said of us here in the New Testament setting in which we live. Well, unlike God's covenant people, the servant of the Lord was obedient. He did not rebel nor turn away. His obedience is seen in two areas in our text. His obedience in being taught and his obedience in suffering. And we see the servant's obedience in instruction in verses 4 and 5. Where we read, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear. It is God who equipped and taught his servant. And the servant in turn was obedient and received such instruction. It takes discipline to learn. Children, perhaps in school, you're well aware of the need for discipline and learning. To be awakened morning by morning to receive instruction. We see this in the life and earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. 
While in conversation with the Pharisees, for example, in the temple, Jesus says in John 8, verses 26 and 29, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them as a father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things which please him. Jesus Christ obeyed the commandments and teachings of God the Father. He spoke the things which he was taught by God the Father. And we see that Jesus Christ then is the fulfillment of the servant of the Lord prophecies. We'll recall perhaps this afternoon we will, as we turn to Acts 8 as the introduction to that sermon, the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading from Isaiah 53, and he asked Philip, who was this speaking about? Himself or some other man? Well, this answer was Jesus Christ. And so it is with all of these servant songs, including our text, Isaiah 50. It is about Jesus Christ. But for what purpose did the servant obey? What is the significance of the servant of the Lord's obedience here in Isaiah 50? Well, we find the answer in verse 4. We read there that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. The servant learns so that he can teach and to bring comfort. And there are two aspects to point out here. At first, the servant is obedient and being taught so that he can speak a word in season. As in Isaiah 49, verse 2, where the servant's mouth has been made like a sharp sword, we see here that it is through words, through words, that the servant delivers his message of comfort and salvation to his people. And we see this fulfilled in the life of Jesus. What was the primary means by which he ministered to people? He preached the word of God. We read of the ministry of Jesus in Mark 1, verses 14 to 15. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel. And that was his chosen means by which he declared and ushered in the kingdom of God. And we read a short while later in Mark chapter 1, verses 36 to 38. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Jesus' ministry was prioritized on preaching, declaring the word of the Lord. And so we see that first that the servant was obedient in being taught in order that he would speak a word in the season. Well, secondly, <clears throat> you see, the purpose for this region was that so that he would know how to speak a word in season to him who was weary. The servant was 
being sent to bring comfort to the weary. Back in Isaiah 42, verse 3, we read the gentleness of the Savior. And untimely over. Remember these beautiful words. A bruised weed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not punch. And so here it is in our own text, Isaiah 50. The servant is equipped to speak a word in season to him who is weary. And what type of weariness is being described here? Well, I believe that there are three types of weariness. Three areas where God's people become weary, both in the context of our Isaiah passage and throughout history. And they all have to do with sin. And the first is weariness from the hard effects of the curse of the fall into sin in this world. We suffer because we live in a sin-cursed world. How often do our prayers involve praying for people who are suffering because of sickness or tragedy or death? Things like weather can cause unspeakable tragedy. Our world is filled with misery because we live in a world of thorns that make life very difficult. Of physical and mental infirmities which cause great sorrow, loss, and pain in our lives. And so often suffering in this world is not directly related to the personal sins of some, but because of the general reality of the curse of sin in this life. Life is filled with weariness. Well, another cause of weariness is the sins of others. The sins of those outside of our own lives, in our lives, but not us. How many people suffer due to the misery caused by the sins of others against them? Gun violence, drunk driving, drug activity, and other crimes dominate the headlines. But it doesn't take headline-making sins to cause suffering to us. Many of us have been victims of fraud. We've been stolen from, have been maligned, threatened, Insulted, demeaned, gossiped about, and much more. The phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, is false. How many of us have been deeply wounded and hurt by harsh and unthoughtful words said to us by another? Words can cause lasting harm. The sins of others against us cause us to be weary. But it isn't just people out there who cause us to suffer. Our own sin, our own personal sin, is our greatest enemy. How many of us who are married can say that they have never hurt our spouse by thoughtless and harsh words, or other sins committed against the one we ought to love the most in this life? How many of you children this morning can Truly say you have always been perfect in obedience to your parents. How many of us who are parents have disciplined and selfish anger? How many of us have held grudges and been bitter towards one another? Have you defrauded and filled with hateful anger, lusted, coveted, stolen, lied, had idols in your hearts, blasphemed God's name through your words of conduct? 
been unthankful, violated his special day of rest, and on and on and on. Do you see in yourself sin? Sin which she hates, perhaps even, but you can't seem to overcome. Perhaps you find in yourself some evidence, perhaps strong evidence, that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you, but only to find that once one sin has been defeated, a new layer of sin has been exposed to you that you didn't even notice. You can relate to the Apostle Paul crying out in Romans 7, 22-24. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law in my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of Our own sin leads us to be weary. Sin brings misery. Sin brings weariness. But there is hope. The servant himself declares here in verse 4 of our text, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the Lord that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. The ministry of the servant was to bring a seasonable word to sustain his weary. And Jesus Christ fulfilled this in his ministry, declaring in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, gives rest to the weary because when the weary turn to him to find rest and peace and comfort, he gives it. Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for the sins of all those who have faith in him and repent. Jesus Christ reconciled us to God, earning peace with God. And this means that God, who is sovereign over all, loves us. He loves His people. And this reality can lead to joy, even in the midst of suffering, even in trials which cause us pain and sorrow. There is still a deep peace and joy that come alongside heartache and pain, which enables us to carry on. When God sees our suffering and cares about us, often bringing relief in one form or other in this life. When God gives His people faith in repentant hearts, He molds us and changes us into holy people who serve Him. And one day He will bring us to be with Him in glory forever, where sin and shame and weariness will never find us again. And this is all because of Christ and the fact that Jesus was obedient in being taught, thereby knowing how to comfort the weary. One of the reasons why God's people find comfort in weariness 
is because the servant was perfectly obedient, even in suffering. You see, he can relate to us. We read in verse 6, describing the servant, describing his own situation. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and from sin. God's people had sinned and rebelled against the Lord, and had rejected His grace and instruction. But here in our text, the servant of the Lord did not rebel against God's instruction. He obeyed even when commanded to do so, meant that he would have to suffer. We saw this in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, submitted to his heavenly Father's will, declaring in Matthew 26, verse 39, Not as I will, but as you will. And this obedience and suffering was also seen in the passage from Mark 15 that we read. Then the soldiers led Jesus away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowed the knee, they worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe from him, put his own clothes back on him, and led him out to crucify him. The servant was called to be obedient, even to the point of suffering, and he obeyed. And Jesus Christ suffered completely, fulfilling these prophetic remarks in Isaiah 50, verse 6. Who else is that described? Clearly, Jesus and it was the mission of the servant of the Lord to be obedient no matter what happened to him. And here we have a glimpse of what Jesus Christ would do to save his people from their sins. Already 700 years before Jesus came into this world as a baby. And for his obedience, one would expect Jesus to have a great blessing and praise from me. He deserved that. He still does. But instead, we read of him being spat on, mocked, struck. And yet, amazing, we read that this unjust and wicked treatment of the Lord of glory did not cause him to turn away from obedience, but rather that he set his face like a flint, entirely determined to carry out and complete the mission given to him by God the Father. Why was he so determined, despite all opposition? So he could save his people. Jesus Christ received what his people deserved. What they, what you and I, dear believer, have earned due to our sin. In Jesus Christ, we have an obedient Savior who can save to the uttermost. In him, believe in him. Well, next we see that this obedient servant is a vindicated servant. The servant of the Lord was prophesied to be abused and suffer at the hands of his wicked people. In verses 7 and 9, his suffering is not due to his own sin or wrongdoing. 
and that he will be vindicated over his enemies. We read in the beginning of verses 7, 8, and 9 that God will be a slipper. Isaiah declares this reality in each verse in different ways. In verse 7, we read, For the Lord God will help me. And here we see that in his suffering, he gained strength to endure. He gave his back to scourging. His cheeks were given to have his beard torn out. And his face was spat upon. But he was strengthened to endure because God was there to help him. In verse 8, we read that the servant, we read the servant say that God is near who justifies me. He was justified, meaning that he was vindicated from the charges of wrongdoing by the The servant issued three challenges even to those who oppose him. Who will contend with me? Who is my adversary? Who is he who will condemn me? Jesus Christ was perfectly holy and righteous in thought, in word, and in deed, and there was none to condemn him. Even Pilate, as human judge, three times in the Gospel of Mark, or Luke, in the Gospel of John, declared his innocence. I find no fault in this man. Over and over and over again was that declaration. There is no one who can condemn Jesus Christ because he did nothing worthy of condemnation. And isn't it so striking that even in the Quran, those who have it so wrong declare Jesus' perfection. Isn't that most striking? Even pagans have nothing to say or to condemn Jesus for. In verse 9 we read, Surely the Lord God will help me. Here the servant almost repeats how verse 7 begins, but with the added emphasis that God's help will surely come. Well, why is this important? Why does Isaiah focus on the vindication of the servant of the Lord? Well, that no accusation could be leveled against Jesus Christ means that his suffering and atoning death on the cross will be acceptable to God. In the Old Testament, we know that the Passover offering always had to be an unblemished lamb, a lamb perfect in body. And here, Jesus Christ, in order to be able to make a perfect atonement for the sins of his people also had to be blameless. Perfect. And he is. Jesus is the spotless lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. And furthermore, the fact that Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous life means that he can credit his people with his own righteousness. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, this is a marvelous verse. For he, that's God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is in union with him. Us being the righteousness of God, we've already confessed our own sinfulness. We'll read the law this evening, Lord willing, and we'll be struck by how we have not obeyed. But God sees us as righteous as Jesus Christ. God's people are credited as being as righteous as Jesus Christ when they have been justified and saved from their sins. This is most glorious. 
it reveals how important it is that the servant of the Lord be vindicated as the obedient servant. It's essential. Who can stand against anyone whom the Lord defends and gives up to? This is not only the case of Jesus Christ, but all who are united to Christ by faith. When Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sins on the cross, dear ones, and when His perfect life is credited to you, who is there who can condemn? They cannot condemn you any sooner than they can condemn Jesus Christ Himself. We read of this in Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. No one can charge either Christ or his redeemed people. No other system of religion or means of salvation that we can concoct will be effective to save. Because only Jesus Christ has been vindicated in this way. And there is no other one in whom you are to place your trust. Jesus Christ is the way, the life, and the truth. No one comes to the Father but by Him. We read in verse 7 that the servant knows that he will not be ashamed, and neither will any who place their faith in Him. So we see that the obedient servant is vindicated. Well, finally, in the last two verses of Isaiah 50, we have put before us two responses to the obedient servant who has been vindicated by God. We have seen that the servant of the Lord was obedient, and that God has declared him innocent, vindicated against the charges of all his enemies, Jesus says there. And now the final question is put upon the hearers, of these very things. Here is that include us today. Right now. How will you respond? The Bibles that we have in our hands, or perhaps on our cell phones in this age, are not filled with merely a series of factual propositions. There are many. But that's not all it is. Christianity does not consist of mere facts that were to intellectually know in order to be a Christian, although knowledge is essential. We, along with knowing, need to submit and believe the truth that God presents in His Word, and that He orchestrated and worked out in history, and is doing so now through the preaching of the Gospel through the Church. And such a response is demanded here by God in these last two verses. And the first response is demanded, that is demanded is to place our trust in the servant in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord, we read? Who obeys the voice of this servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. We have here God calling on his people to trust his servant, the one whom he has sent to save. 
servant is obedient to the Lord, and now his people are called to obey his servant themselves. And the ones called on to obey are not perfect. They are even said to walk in darkness and have no light. What does that mean? It means they know they're sinners. God's people know they're sinners. And this does not mean that they live a life of sin, but they are weary of sin, as we saw in verse 4. They're weary of it. They don't want it anymore. And yet they are called to fear the Lord. Obey the Lord and trust the Lord. We have a picture painted for us of an obedient, vindicated servant, Jesus Christ, who is capable, who is holy, mighty, gracious, merciful, and gentle. He is the object of our faith, the right object. Believe that his work on the cross is effectual for you, to take away your sins, to redeem you and deliver you from the wrath of God in which you deserve. Effectual to encourage you in your weariness. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is the commanded response. Trust and obey. In verse 11, another response is also presented. We read there, Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have for my hand. You shall lie down and come out. And here we have a most solemn and great warning. We have considered the grace and glory of God in the person who worked Jesus Christ. He was not rebellious. He willingly gave his back to those who struck him in the form of a scourge. He submitted his cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. He was spat on and struck, ultimately crucified. But he was also gentle and provides a word in season to his people when they're weary. He is the light of truth. I am the light of the world, he says. He's the light of truth, grace, and love to all his people, both Jews and Gentiles. But woe to those who reject him. Woe to those who look at all he has done and say, No! Get away from me, Jesus! I don't believe in you. I don't want you. Woe to those who look at their own abilities and resources and say, I can do this on my own. This rejection is described here as walking in the light of one's own fire. Meaning walking in your own understanding and specifically rejecting the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, for those who have ever been next to the light of a campfire, let's say, on a dark night, they know how, how very little light is ultimately cast. Especially when compared to sparks. Children, perhaps you have a stick and lit it on fire and make it around. Not much light is cast. Compared to daylight, many shadows remain, and it can be difficult to recognize other people and other objects. Well, the light of understanding that we can generate on our own is like that. It does not lead to an understanding of truth, and it does not reveal to us our own needs. We can't find our needs outside of God's revelation. 
of Jesus, the light of the world. We need the light of truth from God's word in Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. The light. The only light. Outside of him there is spiritual darkness. An insistence to not repent of sin and to not trust in Jesus Christ is an outright rejection of him. And it's a relying on one's own understanding. Well, there are only two options as to how we are to respond to the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either repent and believe or reject. It's really that simple. And this boils the complexity of philosophy and all of these confusing world religions down in the most simple way, doesn't it? Anything that is not repenting and having faith in Christ alone for salvation is a rejection of him. There is belief and truth in God's word, and there's everything else that man has come up with. And rejection comes in many forms, and with many fancy names and complex systems of personal obedience where we try to earn our way to God in our own strength by the light of our own fire. These names include Islam, Hinduism, Atheism, Legalism, Liberalism, and many other systems of thought and belief that deny Christ as Savior and Lord, as God and man. I really recently listened to Ray Comfort, perhaps you're familiar with him, speaking to a man who insisted that he will approach God on his own terms, not on God's terms. This is rejecting Jesus Christ. This is living by the light of one's own fire. And it will lead to only one thing. You shall go down in torment. Torment, otherwise known as hell, awaits those who reject the Lord. And the phrase, you shall lie down, implies a continuous state. And the wording in verse 11, walk in the light of your own fire, implies that those who reject Jesus Christ and His extreme grace and mercy have only themselves to blame. No one else to blame but themselves. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, before us all is placed two future realities that everyone will slot into. A fear, obedience, and trust in Jesus Christ leading to eternal life. Or a rejection of Him leading to eternal torment. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Amen. Oh dear God, our Father, we have presented before us a great reality of the sufficient amazing, effective work of Jesus Christ on the cross who took our sins on his own shoulders and suffered for them, paving the way for eternal life for all of them. Oh Lord, your grace and glory is so displayed in Christ like in no other. Oh Lord, give us all faith. Help us to believe. Help us never to reject this most gracious thing. Oh, Lord, may we love you, serve you, and believe in you. 
with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. For Jesus' sake. Let's respond to your congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ by singing together Trinity 243, O oh, quickly come, read Jack the Ball.